This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A Million Little Things is a drama on ABC that parallels my life in certain ways. One of the main characters dies by suicide, but the who is really about the seven friends left in the wake of this sudden loss. John always said everything happens for a reason, even how we all met. Guys, this doesn't make any sense. This is John. Perfect John. Maybe something else was going on. People keep secrets. To John. John. Friendship is being able to have the hard conversations. And My guests today to are DJ Nash, he's the creator of the show, and Dr. Barbara Van Dahlen, the show's psychological consultant. She is tasked with making the show accurate from a psychological, mental health standpoint. I've gotten to know both DJ and Barbara pretty well over the last several months and year, and I think that you'll find their insights into this topic incredibly important. So we're going to talk about the role of fictional and popular media and suicide prevention, all this week on Life After Suicide. DJ and Barbara, welcome. Um, you guys are in Los Angeles, correct? Yes. Yes. Because you are you are working. I am working. Yes, I am working right now. <laughs> I did. I swear, I, I didn't put that I in air it, quotes. I it, yes. I, yeah. I did not put that on in air quotes. <laughs> it felt like it. I'll be honest with you. It felt like air quotes. <laughs> I swear, my hands did not leave my lap. <laughs> I have a job. I, I know. And I work. <laughs> and, and I have I have a few different jobs, and I I occasionally have the pleasure and the honor of uh, working with DJ. And the amazing writers on this show. And you're always plugged in. I know that, Barbara, wherever you are. Um, DJ, I want to start with you. You know, when we first spoke and we talked about, you know, the parallels that our lives have, uh, not just working with and for ABC and in a television medium, but the the loss of a loved one to suicide, both of us experienced that. Um, I want to go back before then and ask you what made you think that creating a show that was based or started around the issue of suicide would actually do well on primetime network television. Oh, I didn't know that at all. <laughs> <laughs> you rolled um, the dice. Yeah, well, it's just the way I've always told stories. You know, it goes back to my days as a stand-up comic. I would tell a joke or tell a, really tell a real story from my life and notice on stage that people would nod and they'd laugh and they'd identify. And so... Even if I go back to one of my early bits about growing up and having a Snoopy snow cone machine, remember that song and all the you, know, you put the ice cubes in, you get the snow cone out. Yum yum fun is those what it's all good. about. Come yeah. listen. Um, right back from those days, when people would nod and uh, come up to me after the show, or if I were doing a show again, someone might bring a snow cone machine as a as a joke for me to sign at a show. Um, I know I knew that oh, there are certain topics that people are identifying with. So in writing this show. That's really all I was doing as well. It's the same uh, formula. It's the same MO. I, I just want to tell stories that um, my audiences will identify with. The subject matter came from real experiences I had had, uh, losing a friend to suicide. Um, and I, I think write what you know is just the only thing I've ever known how to do. 
I've heard your story uh, about your friend, but can you, if you feel comfortable, uh, share that uh, again and how it then kind of became the impetus for this create creativity about the life after suicide? Sure. And, you know, the only part of me that's not comfortable sharing it is um, talking to someone like you because I know the person you lost played such a more relevant role in your life, more substantial but role. Before so, you, but yeah. before you mm-hmm. tell that story, DJ, I think mm-hmm. what's important, and, and actually I would like Barbara to weigh in on this uh, as a psychologist, you know, you're such a kind and, and compassionate and sensitive person to say something like that. But I That's feel not air quotes, right? No, <laughs> no, no air quotes. But <laughs> but I feel like when people talk about suicide, when they have thoughts like that or say things like, "Well, yours is worse than mine," I I feel like we should say, you know what? It's it's not a competition. It's not a contest. We've all had pain. And, you know, because I've also found myself saying that when I talk about parents who have lost children to suicide, I say, oh, that is so much worse than what we went through. But, Barbara, it's we probably shouldn't be doing that, right? Because it's it's all bad for all of us in different ways. Well, it, it's interesting, Jen, and that it's both of these things are are true meaning. When DJ said that, that's his he's connecting with you and he's he's wrestling with his own his awareness that you've had this pain and and being sensitive and thoughtful which he is he's always very, also very funny but that part of him you know comes through in 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 who he is in interactions in the show so that's actually i, I think a way that humans that we we try to connect with each other we don't quite always know the right thing to say and i think what we want to encourage people to do is that is try Whatever you say, I'm not, I'm not sure, or I'm, I'm wondering if, or I feel uncomfortable because I think those are our attempts to connect. I think that you're, and then what you said, of course, that's true, that everyone's loss is a loss that is painful. I, I just, when I'm approached by a mom who lost their son to suicide, or when I'm approached by um, someone like yourself who, who, who lost someone more uh, closer to them, I- I'm just aware that the day-to-day differences in my life because of the death weren't as profound. Um, that said, my friend's death completely changed me. So to answer your question, I was um, working on a show, and it was not a great gig for me. It really was really tough. And it paid more than any gig had played, paid before then. So it kind of made me even feel worse about it, a little dirty. And I said to my agents, can I give the money back? And they said, no, because some of that money's ours. <laughs> and I would do this thing. And I said this. I walked every day at lunch. And the walk I did at lunch was just to psych myself up for the afternoon, just to be able to go back in that room. And it really was just a bad environment. Um, and one day when I was walking, I ran into a friend of mine, and he is hilarious, and we both lit up. We both needed to run into each other. I could feel it. And he, we were, dude, yes, we should have lunch, totally. And it wasn't an L.A. BS thing. We both meant it. And he said, I'm really busy this week. How about next week? And I said, yes, but we're doing it. And then he killed himself. And as I've said, I don't feel for a second like my lunch, our lunch could have saved him. But I do feel a lot of seconds like we could have had one more lunch. And I think that death, you know, your book was fantastic. I read it from cover to cover and stopped and 
rewarded myself with reading it when I deserved it from work I'd done. It was all the things you want from wow. a book. Yeah, it was really great. Hmm. Um, we'll talk about how angry I am that you're a doctor and you wrote a book, but whatever. It's fine. It's <laughs> totally fine. It's my whole life passion. With help. Writing, but you, you just help. did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. I, we had this talk <laughs> I know. But I just, if I suddenly had like, did a heart transplant, I'm just saying that could be mm. my, anyway. Um, uh, but um, he, for me, selfishly, he died at just the right time. He made me, his death was like a slap in the face. It made me think, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. What, what's important? The secret to success in life is carefully defining success. Mm-hmm. So what is that going to be for you? And what are you going to do? And when I went to his funeral, I was trying to figure out how someone different than someone who's so the same as me on paper had such a different end to their life. And I was reminded of uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. and his faithful trip uh, flight to Martha's Vineyard and how he lost sight of the horizon. His instruments were telling him which way was up, but he didn't trust them. And he started to nosedive. And by the time he realized it was too late, he, he couldn't pull up. Mm. And for me, that's, that's depression. And so I wrote that down. Just I always write if I have an idea, I write something down because maybe one day I'll write a book like you, <laughs> and, um, or or a show. Um, sure. Um, and uh, that was Maggie's speech in the pilot. Maggie, who's one of the friends who's a psychologist, is explaining to the other friends how their their friend took his life and why why that happened. And she uses that example. So um, yeah, the show very much comes from the experience I had and from. The experience I'm having, the, the, the show is not about one friend dying. It's about seven friends finally living. But Barbara, from a psychological standpoint, this A, isn't always possible to really start living after you lose a loved one because it's very easy and natural and normal to register that as a profound trauma, tragedy, loss. But why is that saying that death is the ultimate educator what what is the psychological kind of underpinnings of that? So that's uh, a great question, and and again, you know, thinking about everyone who's listening, and and many have had experiences with loss, and for some, it it does allow this sense of of clarity and and experiencing life in a different way, and finding purpose and meaning, and why that happens. It, uh, I think psychologically, we all sort of go through life um, until something happens, basically just sort of living and taking care of ourselves and doing the things that, that really sort of are needed. And, and we all have this, this sort of buffer around us, um, which is why it's so tra- tragic when children face death of a loved one, a friend, a sibling, because that's stripped away before it's supposed to be stripped away. And they, they no longer are able to be in this sort of bubble and this innocence of I'm safe, I'm protected, and I can just live. So when we lose that, and, and again, depending on when you lose it and unfortunately how many traumas and tragedies are piled on top of each other, it, it potentially changes the way that you see things and allows you to recognize, I don't have an endless amount of time on this planet. There are things that happen that will change and, and, and I may lose people I love. I may lose my ability to do what I do. And so we 
potentially appreciate things differently, recognize what we have, recognize what we don't have, what we want, what we need. So it's a lifting of a, of a veil or that sort of bubble that is around us that, by the way, psychologically is really, really important that we have that. Um, but it, it also is important that we, at some point, have the ability to see that, that life is limited, our time here is limited. It, it gives us a different appreciation. What I love about what you said is um, it had nothing to do with suicide. So if you just talk about death for a second, and I go back, I know exactly the first death I had to deal with in my life. My friend uh, Chuba died in eighth grade. Mm. He had cancer. We went home for the summer. I got two letters, one saying he's doing better, and the next saying services will be. And, you know, every death I've had to deal with since then goes back to that. And I think of the first dog, my dad's first guide dog, when we had to um, put her down and, and how profound that was. And so I think just from a death standpoint, you do – and I, I will say to you, there was a woman I dated in college who was wonderful. I hope my daughter turns out like her. But I went to my friend's uh, funeral who died right after college. Boom. I realized this is not the right relationship. I look at my grandmother's funeral. We went to that. And the way my – now wife was with my family, made me realize life is short, and I went out and bought a ring the next week. I mean, there's, there, you can look at like why my life is, is, has, the, the, my most successful show I've ever had is about death. About, so you look at how profound that is. If you add to that this idea of suicide, yes. which to people who don't know more feel like something that could have been prevented, something that could have, someone could have just chosen to not do that, um, you look at this thing that is so final, so devastating, so life-changing, and you think, well, maybe I could have prevented that. And you look at that yourself and you go, if I'd had that lunch, if I hadn't had that argument, if whatever those things are that we, we do to ourselves, um, I think that's the part of this that stings the most mm -hmm. because you feel like, oh, I could have changed that. The same way when my father-in-law died, of cancer, I go, oh, if we just gotten him to the right doctors. You know, that's just something we do. Yeah. And, and that's just a natural, I mean, um, and Barbara, I don't think it's do bad think that we do it because no. I think there's, there's a part right. of it that is, um, as humans, us being compassionate, us trying to better ourselves. And also us as humans, we like control. We like to feel like we have it. Oh, then I'm very human. <laughs> yes, me too. We, we in fact, superhuman. In fact, it is the, the, basis of what keeps us able to be in this very tenuous place, meaning life, that we believe, and this is a good thing, but it also gets us into a lot of trouble. And it goes, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that around this, around suicide, because it, there's, it's all wrapped up in this. But we believe, we convince ourselves that we have a lot more control than we actually do. And so it is very destabilizing. It is very upsetting um, when we are are faced with an experience like a death, just a death, uh, cancer, especially someone who should not have died in accident. Suicide is multiple times that. When I, when I talk to folks, you know, I, uh, when we're talking about the work we're doing or why it's important to learn how to talk about these things, I often use a simple example that many people have had, you know, a minor car accident, you know, where they backed out and cracked, crashed into somebody in a parking lot or somebody hit them. Nobody was seriously injured, but 
many people will have the experience of for the rest of that day, maybe the next day, they think, oh, if only I'd turned the other way. Oh, if only I hadn't turned on the, the radio. If only I had paid attention. We naturally try to undo things that we don't like, that we wish didn't happen. And that is this, again, this sense that we could have controlled. We could control everything. And and that's not true. But again, it's very human. It's very natural. And in a way, these these losses allow us, if we're properly supported, if we have the right language and the right love in our lives, to have the experiences that DJ just referenced. We are able to use those examples, experiences that, oh my goodness, life is short. We do have choices. We can make different ones. And, and I want to hold on to what I actually can control. That's that's the right. potential. Well, my mother... You know, when you start quoting your mother, you know that it's you've really crossed over to the dark side. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but my mother always, always used to say to me and my brother, you can't control what happens, but you can control what you do with what happens. Wise mom. And yeah, exactly. So, of course, I, I'm now taking over that mantra with my own kids but uh, and have actually for quite some time. But Barbara, I want to ask you um, – initially you said something about could we have prevented this or is it a choice? Do you think that's such a loaded issue with people who have lost loved ones to suicide? Because we do know that there are very important things that we can do when dealing with someone who's battling a mental illness that can lower their risk of having suicidal ideation and that suicide can possibly be prevented. But do you think it can be? So it's a, that's a very, very important question. And and you will hear many of us in, in the mental health community say, these are preventable deaths. And why do we say that? Because the person who takes their own life makes a choice. They're not dying from a an illness like cancer that we, we don't have the skills, the medicine, the technology to prevent that process. Does that mean that that individual who died by suicide, your husband, DJ's friend, and other folks that we all know who have lost loved ones, could we have prevented that death? Not necessarily. And it isn't, um, it isn't always the case that this individual could have been saved at that point. If we could have backed up to the beginning of their life and things had happened differently for them and they hadn't experienced those trauma or if there was depression and we had treated that, but that's a very, very, very different um, story, different narrative than any one of us could have done anything in the days or weeks or even months that could have stopped, prevented that particular death. But just right. to respond I, to that, and I am the person in this uh, podcast who does not have the word doctor in front of <laughs> their name. And I, we and can I give you one. No, I really, yeah. I don't. The, the thing about it is, um, while in the last year, I've, maybe two years, I've become more educated with regard to the issues of suicide, that's, I, I'm not, my goal is to tell stories. And I have to, it's something I'm very aware of that I don't want our characters to be as knowledgeable as some of the writers are because you want it to feel authentic. Right. right. So with the caveat that this may be incorrect and not medically sound, uh, but storyteller-wise, 100% true, there's an element to our show that, 
everything happens for a reason. It is the thing that John has said that is quoted in the show, and we have seen it many times in the series, this magical element um, if or spiritual element, if you will, the idea that in the pilot, Eddie, who we know is an alcoholic, is debating whether or not to drink his sadness over losing his friend, the guilt over how he may have caused it. Um, as that's happening, a moment that was set up early in the show about picking up a hockey stick for his son, his son comes down to retrieve the hockey stick. And if his son hadn't come downstairs to retrieve the hockey stick, Eddie would have had a drink. And so there is this element of, oh, if I had gone a different way to work, I wouldn't have gotten in that car accident. So for me, the non-doctor, looking at suicide, I go, um, no, it's absolutely correct that maybe if the person had, I read recently about a, a survivor who jumped from a bridge and survived and he said, I was just looking around if someone had hugged me that day. Yeah. So there is this element well, where the you- Kevin Hunt. Yeah, yes. so you look at yeah. it and you go, um, uh, I don't know. Like, so, so, so for me, so that's the part of me that goes, maybe if I'd had that lunch. And that's, well, that's not fair, but it's- But that's a different thing, DJ. Yeah. Meaning that in hindsight, in hindsight, people do this thing where they, they beat themselves up. I should have, I could have, and we don't- we don't know if you had had lunch with him. Maybe. Maybe you, he would have shared with you and you would have been the one that walked him over to the emergency room. Maybe. But we don't know that. We can never know that. Is, does that mean that if someone had hugged Kevin, because I know that I know Kevin, I've met him, the gentleman who, one of the few who, who, who stepped off the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge, and he said that. Had that happened, would he have not jumped perhaps but that's that day that day exactly correct but that is that is we need to be very careful that people who have lost loved ones don't don't haunt themselves with this notion that there was something they could have done do i believe that there is something that could have been done to save every single person who's ever taken their life yes i do where in the process of their life would we have needed to intervene that's a very complex mm-hmm. um, question. That, but again, the fact that we wrestle and we talk, my hope is that someday we're so much better at talking about all these things that many, many, many fewer people will be at the, that choice point, and so we we won't be having shows like this. I totally agree. I have to say, as the non-doctor and as the as the as the person, the storyteller, I a hundred percent agree with you. What you said. And yet I still blame myself. Yeah, and, of course. And, and, and so I know and I want to sort of almost validate for the people out there who might be doing that too. You shouldn't. Of course. But I do. But people do. So mm-hmm. just to, if I, I'm, I'm going to hijack right now for a second <laughs> to say that Go I. Go for it. So um, the experience of doing the show has been just um, not overwhelming, whelming plus. It's been, it's been a lot. It's, it's been a lot. And um, I've had the opportunity to. Um, see that other people are experiencing things that I've experienced. And it happened initially when we were making the pilot. If someone from the crew came up with a clipboard or a binder, I knew they were going to ask me about a location or about a prop. But by day three, if they came up empty-handed, I knew they were going to tell me about a cousin they lost to suicide or about Mm -hmm. how their mother was fighting breast cancer. And in the year that we've been on the air with social media and with 5K races we do where we meet fans... um, the biggest surprise for me this season is while I 
set out to tell my story, what I realized along the way is we were telling all of our stories. Mm-hmm. And um, there's been some incredible things that have happened, moving things. The, the morning our finale aired, I got a letter from a mom who had lost her son to suicide 37 days before. And as soon as I read that part of the letter, I did the math and I realized, oh, our show was on. So she watched our show. Then her son took his mm-hmm. life. Then she stopped watching our show. And she wrote in the letter that she came back to the show because she was hoping that seeing the characters get some closure might provide her with some closure. The letter was heartbreaking. It was honest. It was a parent's worst nightmare. And I talked to Dr. Barber, which is what I often do whenever <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, it's it's amazing. I used to go to my dad and now I go mm-hmm, to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll get you a Father's Day card. I and so um, I um, said, hey, we have to get this woman help we did she's she's hurting and dr barbara mentioned a national organization that has survivors um has a group for survivors helping survivors and that is the thing as i think you actually say in your book the thing about survivors of suicide is there is it's a group you would never want to belong to but it is a group that is unbelievably welcoming and so we got the number and i was all set to send the number and i said i don't want to send her a number I'm going to get her a name. So I called the local chapter and I said, hey, I'm DJ Nash. I have a show on ABC called A Million Little Things. And the woman who answered said, I know exactly who you are, which for the kid who struck out a kickball was very cool. You know, that's (laughs) cool. I'll take that moment. Mm -hmm. And I said, um, I told her the story and what I needed. And within 10 minutes, she had me talking to a mom who had lost her son seven years earlier. And the two moms met for coffee about six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I will say to you, that is the part of this show that has just been, you know, I, I showed it to uh, James Roday, who plays Gary on our show. And he said, if we do nothing else, if we're canceled right now, if the show did nothing other than bring these two moms together, it was worth it. Totally. And I think there's a part of compensating for the loss we had and feeling like, oh, if we could just do this, it'll help us feel better about it, help us make up for it. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, when you when yeah. you decided to do this show, DJ, and it, and it got picked up, and you knew it was a go, it had been given the green light. I mean, you once said to me, I think the first time we spoke by phone, you said, "Listen, I want to be clear. I'm in the business of entertainment. You know, I'm a creative writer. I am writing a fictional show." And and uh, you were very clear. You said, "You know, I'm not. I am not a psychologist. I'm not." Um, you know, trying to fix something on a massive scale. I sell soap. I (laughs) I think so, something like that. Yes. But as usual, you're incredibly modest and humble because I think that basically, you know, it's obvious to everyone that through your art, through entertainment, through creative fictional writing, you are putting forth a message. 
through the messenger of this show. So when did you decide? Can you? And that message is you put the ice cubes in, you get the snow cone (laughs) out. Exactly. Yum, yum, fun is what it's all about. That is my message. (laughs) Well, one of them. Yeah, okay. Right, one of them. Sure. But but when did you decide um, that it was important to really get the psychology and the mental health aspect correct? When did you realize that responsibility? Um, I had sold the show. And I remember the day I sold the show because I was really excited because no one said, you know, just forgetting the subject matter as a guy whose roots were stand up and who had only written in the half hour comedy, uh, television comedy world. Um, the idea that I sold a drama was a was a very big deal. So I had sold the show and a dear friend of mine who a lot of people know, Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park, Mm -hmm. he had lost his bandmate, his best friend to suicide. And my wife and I, uh, I know Mike and I know his wife, Anna, they're lovely Lovely people. people. So um, we had four tickets to the Hollywood Bowl and it was John Williams uh, doing, you know, the music of John Williams. uh, And uh, I said to Mike, hey, how about a night of music that's, let you love music again and they did so we went we were in this box a beautiful night beautiful music and mike said to me what are you working on <laughs> i was like oh uh we don't have to do mm-hmm. this and yeah. he didn't know what i meant and i said no it's just um and i told him the premise of the show it's a show about a group of friends uh whose lives are forever changed when the friend in the group whose life is the most put together on paper um dies by suicide he's we talked about it and he was very cool. I'm very aware of, um, you know, I, I don't want to own everyone's experiences. And also I share everything a lot. So not everyone's comfortable doing that. (laughs) So he did share a lot. And I said, Hey, I, I have this, um, two page sort of synopsis of the pilot. Can I send it to you? And he said, I'd love it. And their involvement was just really incredible because I had a resource that I trusted people who I, would want to emulate who were going through an experience that was very profound. And they put me in touch with Dr. Barbara and I knew from having done the show growing up Fisher, which was about uh, a visually impaired father based on my dad, who's blind that I wanted to get that right. And we had a consultant there and I knew, I, I knew pretty much how to be the consultant on that show um, I didn't know how to be the consultant on this show. Dr. B was very helpful in um, just talking to me and, and, you know, being a resource to ask questions and not – I always said the world would be a better place if five minutes a day you could ask a question, not be held responsible for asking the question and getting the correct answer. And as we were making this show, um, I remember very distinctly we were up in Vancouver. We were shooting episode three, which was this hockey fantasy camp day. And somebody wanted to pull all of my actors together to teach them about suicide. I don't know who it was, but to get them to not say uh, committed suicide, to say death by suicide. And I, I stopped the whole thing. And I said, I'm so sorry. Hold on one second. I don't want <laughs> the show to be a PSA. Right. Because as soon as the show's a PSA, no one's, no one's going to watch. No one's going to be affected by it. It's really important that it feel authentic. The compliment the show gets that means the most to me is that it's authentic. Mm -hmm. So what I have struggled with or tried to find that balance with is being 100% knowledgeable or trying to be 100% knowledgeable about 
what is correct and what you ought to do while still allowing Gary to be Gary. You know, and we actually talked about it as recently as this morning because there's right. a storyline we're doing and Maggie does not respond the way a therapist ought to. And so Dr. Barber correctly pointed that out and then she said we either need to adjust why she's behaving this way, that, that she's behaving this way or adjust why she's behaving this way. Mm-hmm. And so it actually became a great note and you'll see it. It's in... Uh, in 201, the first episode of the season, and when Maggie finally explains why she did what she did uh, at the hospital, I'll just be that vague so you'll tune Watch in. Watch the show. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a teaser. Um, Got to sell soap. <laughs> anyway, so 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 for me, that has been a process um, that I'm still trying to get right. I hope I get right, um, and I want to be ever aware of the fact that. I'm just trying to tell real stories. I want to speak just a second about language because you mentioned it, DJ, and I know, um, Barbara, this is a a big deal right now just in our society uh, as well as in the media and in journalism and in entertainment. The term committed suicide is really now being kind of phased out or at least – and I do believe it should be. But not everyone – agrees with that. And one of those people who does not agree with that is actually my daughter, uh, who's 19 and a half years old, and she uses the term committed suicide. She says, my father committed suicide. And when I've said to her, when I've had the discussion with her about terminology and accuracy and kind of removing stigma and and the meaning of certain words, she said, mm-hmm, well, um, I pretty much think that I can say however I want to say it because um, it happened to my father. So, and I actually don't disagree with her, you know. And I, for me, I'll say I will use the word "died by suicide" uh, or "took his life," but she feels otherwise. So, Barbara, from a from a terminology standpoint, and specifically as an as a means to drop stigma, what where do you come down on this issue? It's it's a one of those you know complex issues. So my mother um, was schizophrenic. Okay, that's what I grew up saying. Now people would would you know chastise me and say she wasn't schizophrenic. She suffered had. from or had even the term suffered from schizophrenia. There are people who don't like that because they feel like that casts her in a certain way. But my mom spent forty years on the streets, off and on. She suffered. And so I'm in that way, I'm like your daughter in that I I can say that because I know she did suffer from that that mental illness. So I, I, I feel, um, it, again, it is sort of, I think, a good thing about our society that we struggle with these things, these, these terms. I think people can defensively react angrily about one term or the other and as a way of not owning whatever their experience is, whatever their pain is, whatever their loss is about. Your daughter, she is absolutely entitled to use whatever terminology because that is her experience. And I know from talking to you that she does not mean that in a way that is is negative in the way that some people say they don't want that term used. They don't want that term used because it's like someone committing a crime. And so to remove that and to say that someone died by suicide takes that that um, judgment off. So is that a good thing? Absolutely. I think that over time, we will move to died by suicide, um, took their own life, and that we will no longer use committed suicide. But that may take a generation before that fully happens. 
The just to respond to that, um, my dad blind since he was twelve. If I said, "Oh, my dad's visually impaired," he would go, "What, what are you talking about? I'm blind. I can't see. What? Stop sugarcoating it." So I do think people have a right to own their own experiences, and I think as I've gotten to know the um, survivors of suicide community, that I wouldn't myself want to um, force a description of what their loved one has gone through or went through on them. So that, that doesn't, that lacks the compassion I'd want to have for them. Um, at the same time, I do understand that words carry meaning Mm -hmm. and, and they, and in this case might carry judgment. Mm -hmm. I, I will say personally, when I shifted my terminology, I noticed in myself to answer your question, DJ, that I felt better. I felt less shame when I said my ex-husband died by suicide than my ex-husband committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like it is a kinder, more respectful way to describe the way he died without taking all of the great things about his life and kind of tossing them aside and just focusing on the way he died. What about and I'd like to hear from both of you on this, you know, there is a big concern with media portrayal of suicide and media portrayal of mental illness in general um, on a macro level. Um, The phenomenon of suicide contagion is real. real. There are guidelines and standards for the media coverage of suicide to do so in a way that is professionally responsible so as to minimize Uh, the quote-unquote copycat or contagion effect. Um, But I'd like to hear from both of you about that responsibility and and what you think can be the consequence of that, both pros and cons. Uh, It speaks to how important uh dr barber was or is for our our show uh, the ep- second episode so in the pilot of a million little things rome is uh taking pills uh, about to take his life when he gets a call that john has died and so the one friend dying literally saves the other friend's life and so we are following in the series this spared life of rome's in episode two Rome goes to John's office, his friend's office, who had jumped, and retraces his steps. And as we hear, um, don't you forget about me, um, uh, the music, he is walking to the balcony and he's looking at where his friend jumped. And there was a lot of question as to whether or not this would be appropriate to show. And one of the things that I just hadn't thought of was when you show it in the show. If we had shown that at the end of the show and gone out on that and wondered what happened to Rome as sort of a teaser to get you to come back next week, that's a trigger. But in the episode, thanks to Dr. Barbara, the way we depicted it was we showed him doing that, him stepping down, and in the same episode, having the courage to ask for help. So hopefully... People who were in a desperate place and identifying with Rome saw that and and saw what Rome did, which was step down and get the help he deserves. So I'm not saying that uh, everyone did that, but that I think it comes down to sort of how you do it. Let's talk about what writers are doing in the writer's room, DJ, because I've never been in a writer's room. It's so fun. Is it? <laughs> yes, so it's so really DJ, fun. take us take us inside 
give us the whole, all five senses, if, if appropriate. It is a very incredible place. I've only worked in, on one drama, so I, my drama sample script was a million little things, so I can't say what drama rooms in general are like. I can only speak to what our room is like. Uh, the first day last season, we went around, and there are... Wait, were, first, how many people are in there? Yeah, exactly. There's um, 13 writers, and there were three, uh, two writer's assistants and a script coordinator. But in my mind, there's 16 writers because the difference between a okay. writer's assistant and a staff writer is luck. And is there so, like a big table? Um, uh, there's two rooms I have. I have a room with a table, and I have a room just with couches. And we, for what they can say is no apparent reason, I will jump back and forth between the rooms. And I will say mm-hmm. in the middle of something, oh, other room. And sometimes I do it just to shake it up. Sometimes I do it because... To give the people the two minutes of walking from one room and getting mm-hmm. settled in the other just to get into a different headspace. Is there um, food? Uh, there's always food. And and if the network or studio is listening on the first day, just send healthy food. I what? was going to say, so is much healthy work. food? No. It's like if you would love I our approve? show, just no. I would not approve either. It's just <laughs> I have tried so hard to uh, – Come on, even though I'm not on camera. Come on. So anyway, th- so first I'll day, be your, your nutritional. Consultant. I would love that. I would love that. Just you know, just no and cookies. Brains, brains work better when it's I healthy just, food. Throw, yeah. Just give me a blueberry, please. Okay, blueberry. <laughs> All the writers sit around it. There's not assigned seating. There's nothing like that. Um, there's whiteboards that surround us that have tiles on it where we can put stories up. There are two big monitors so that if the writer's assistant is typing what we're saying. Uh, or, or the script or notes, we can look at it. And if you tune out for a second, you can see what was said or whatever. And also uh-huh. you can make sure that if we get a run, if I'm if one of the writers or, or I am pitching out a, 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 a scene, we can see that we got the words correctly because an end or a but can make all the difference between whether mm-hmm. a moment lands. And, um, and so we uh, sit there. On the first day, we were in the couch room and in the living room, I call it. And um, we went around and we said – I asked one question, why do you want to work on this show? And for whatever reason, and we went around and everyone just decided to go for it. There was, you know, I always say the greatest gift my wife ever gave me was the Snoopy Snowcone machine. No, was, um, was the benefit of the doubt. You know, she just assumes, I mess up all the time, but she assumes that I love her. She assumes I didn't mean to mess up. She assumes that I meant to remember to pick that thing up. Whatever it is. She gives me the benefit of the doubt, and I think that's what we did the first day in the writer's room. I think we all gave each other the benefit of the doubt. And I will say, yes, it's probably because of the pilot and what I started, but these 15 people finished it. And the, you know, there's people in the room who lost loved ones to suicide. There are people in the room who lost loved ones to cancer. I Obviously, they were selected because of their experiences, but we all on the first day decided we're just going to share. And I would say of the 16, maybe 10 people cried the first time going around on the first day. And there are moments in the room where we just share every story we did of those 17 episodes. Every single one started with a real thing that happened to the writer. Now it changed because, oh, if it's going to be Sophie, you want to make it this or whatever that is. But it all comes from a real place. And that's why that authenticity, I think, comes through. Even, you know, one of the episodes that I'm most proud of last season where Regina was looking at her child sexual assault um, came from a real place. And so the sharing that the writers do, you have to create a safe space. But there's just something that happens where we go, okay, you need a minute. And there's something that's amazing that happens because there's been, in the course of the year and a half we've now worked together, There's life has interfered and gotten involved in everyone's... 
Um, and I think we're just more supportive of it because we know uh, – I, I think we're, we, we're leading with that. We're an extremely diverse room in all ways that you can mean it. Yes, in terms of race and gender and uh, um, LGBTQ. Like there's, we are represented very well that way. But in addition, we're also represented um, socioeconomically. You know, some of us grew up very privileged. One of us was homeless. Um, you know, we have different life experiences. My dad is my North Star. Someone never knew their dad. There's, there's just different places that we come from because we're trying to tell all sides of the story. For people listening, uh, Barbara, because this podcast has really resonated, as you know, with so many people who have lost a loved one to suicide and they um, are on all different stages of their journey of healing. Um, what advice do you have for people in particular, who are grieving the loss of a loved one to suicide. Find support and, and, and recognize that this is not a straight line, that your journey, your experience may be very different from someone else's. It's really important to let people closest to you in on what's happening to you and find the people you trust and let them wrap around you because they want to. They really do want to. Sometimes we don't let them very easily. So I would encourage everyone to find those people you trust, that community, and and let yourself be cared for because this is a process. Um, no matter what it looks like, it is a process. If If you are listening and you need help, Please get yourself help. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. We all are sometimes not okay. I really want to thank DJ Nash and Dr. Barbara Von Dahlen for joining me today. The, The feedback for this show has been truly incredible. It speaks to how many people want to have this discussion. I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts and sharing the show with other people. A lot of people have asked me actually how I'm able to have seemed to recover so quickly. Uh, It's just been over two years for me and my family. And, you know, it's a long process, and that process continues. Just because you see me smiling on Good Morning America almost every day doesn't mean that I'm not still struggling. I have my good days, and I have my bad days. But we are going to offer more ideas for recovery in our future episodes of Life After Suicide, future episodes that include discussions on faith. Why is it that Bad things happen to good people, and we don't have an answer. The power of purpose in life. What is a life worth living? And a plan B after sudden loss. There is something empowering about knowing, man, I I got this. I've got people around me who are going to help me through it. I have this inner strength I didn't know existed. So please let us know who you'd like to hear from at DRJ Ashton. Please remember you're not alone. The Prevention Hotline is open 24-7, and it's free. Just dial 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. Trained counselors are available to talk to anyone who needs help. I want to thank the Life After Suicide team that helps put this podcast together. Eric Strauss, Ann Reynolds, Tara Gimble, Trevor Hastings, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kalb, and everyone at ABC News who's been so supportive of life after suicide. Thanks for taking this journey with us. We'll see you back here next week on Life After Suicide.